Welcome to the December 16, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh. The day now known as Red Thumb Day is going to be uh, presented first by Jeremy Tucker addressing the hazards of texting when you're behind a wheel day. Then UCI Law School Dean Erwin Chemerinsky will discuss his new book, The Case Against the Supreme Court and Equal Opportunity Criticism of Progressives and Conservatives on the Supreme Court, but and just a wee bit of his inestimable insight about the CI's performance post 9-11. Then we'll have the good fortune of hearing not from one, but two Stanford climate scientists, Chris Field and Catherine Mock, who recently participated in the Lima Climate Change. I'm breathless right now, but don't go away. We'll be right back in a moment. Hey, everybody. Thanks for staying with me. Welcome back to the show. My first guest today is Jeremy Tucker, Nissan Vice President of Marketing, Communications, and Media, to talk about Red Thumb Day. You know, the day where we take back the streets, the curbs, the sidewalks, from the ubiquitous to pervasive practice of texting while driving, where folks think nothing of putting texting pleasures over the safety of the rest of us. Tucker's extensive corporate experience includes Disney Consumer Products and PepsiCo, Procter & Gamble. Uh, Jeremy Tucker holds a bachelor's degree in both fine art and marketing from Louisiana State University and an MBA from Southern Methodist University's Cox School of Business. Welcome to Ask a Leader as we fly through the ever-important topics this morning with you. Jeremy Tucker. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, I heard myself say that you're affiliated with Nissan, among other large firms. This is not so much a corporate promotion, but a public health appeal, right? You know what? This is something that we need to take on as a whole society. It's pervasive, as you said. Everyone's doing it, myself included, and we've got to stop because we need to put it into these senseless accidents and, 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 and deaths that are occurring because we can't put down our phones. We can't. And I remember an interview not too long ago, within the last couple of years, where Pat Morrison, our local uh, diva of journalism, interviewed the uh, Charlie Black, the PD, LAPD chief, and he admitted as much as it's difficult for him not to uh, answer that that the jingle of a, an incoming text. So it's we know it's we're all wired, and we'll we'll try to address that too. We'll remind us of how hazardous this immediate gratification compulsion is in terms. Yeah, of I mean the stats are, are crazy, right? So if you look at what happens whenever we respond to or we ex- or we start texting while we're driving. It's the equivalent of having four beers, and you're 23 times more likely to get in an accident. And the U.S. Department of Transportation says that with cell phones and texting, these are involved in 1.6 million auto crashes each and every year, and these crashes cause half a million injuries and take over 6,000 lives every year. And that is such a graphic backup proof of how dangerous it is, but it just isn't going through the heads of people that are saying, oh, I just got to see what this amusing text coming in. It just doesn't occur to people. So that that sort of split screen of hazard and pleasure, it's just not registering with the general public. Well, tell us how your company plans to help us out put our phones down. 
Absolutely. Well, Nissan, we're committed to safety, and we believe in reducing fatalities in automotive. And just like you said, we've got to break the cycle. We've got to start a different conversation. Everybody knows intellectually we shouldn't text and drive, but we're trained, and we want to be a part of the conversation with this fear of missing out of what's happening. So the idea is very simple. came from a, a great gentleman named Steve Babcock who noticed his daughter tying a piece of red yarn around her finger to remind her not to forget something. And Steve's like, you know what, I need to stop texting while I drive, and he painted his thumbnail red to remind himself to put down his phone while driving. That was the genesis of the idea. Those great ideas inspired us at Nissan and at, at, at NBC, Universal, The Voice, and Adam Levine to say, you know what, let's take that and run with it. So working with Steve, we said, all right, mark your thumb red any way possible. Be creative. Put a red band on it, a sticker, a nail polish, a pen, whatever you need. So when you look down or have the tendency to fill that jingle in your pocket, your thumb reminds you to put it down, keep your hands on the wheel, and keep your eyes on the road. Okay. Well, so that's where the red thumb came from. Uh, you're an automotive company. I'm just wondering in terms of really hardwiring this uh, hazard and prevent to prevent the hazard, why aren't we having a discussion about disabling phones for the, the person operating the car? You know, I think I think it's a much, much larger conversation, but you've got to start somewhere. And part of it is starting with spreading the awareness and the dangers of texting and driving and interrupting the conversation with our friends and loved ones. So it's creating that movement at the ground floor and then pushing it up all the way through. This is just phase one of a much larger conversation that we want to have across America, across our company, and with our partners. Well, I just want to say, well, my listeners know me well, my sensibilities, and I just want to take this live radio and podcast moment to say, Report back to the upper echelons of Nissan and be the the starters of talking about a disabling capacity for those cell phones. Uh, otherwise, I miss my chance at trying to talk to the the biggest boys and biggest girls. So <laughs> that's all good. This is a conversation yes. that we all need to be having. Well, we know it can happen because uh, there's a lot of other ways that these things have been knocked out that law enforcement can do when they're trying to shut down the conversation. So, uh, at where the uh, protest may be opening up, there's a present for that. So, uh, if our listeners take the pledge, how can they share that with their family and friends? The best thing to do is go to redthumb.org. You'll see a PSA, public service announcement, that Adam recorded from his heart for us. Hey, um, just go online, mark your thumb red, take a picture, snap it, um, and hashtag it redthumb, and post it out to social media to your friends and family. Of course, don't do that while you're driving. Do that at home no, and while you're sitting on um, outside. Um, but start the conversation and have the courage to have the conversation with those around you, those that you love, because it doesn't just impact you. It's the people, the men and the women, and the communities around you um, that could be impacted if you're texting and driving. One last detail, uh, an image that I want to impart in this opportunity while we have to shut this down so early, and I'm sorry to say that, but I want to say the inattentive texting drivers is our American suburban and exurban and urban qu equivalent of an improvised experience. Uh, explosive device. It's our IEDs on our domestic turf. Absolutely. We've got to put a stop to this. It's senseless. It can be controlled. It has to start somewhere. It's a much larger conversation, but this is to create the awareness, the intention, and um, the momentum through the stage of The Voice, through the stage of Adam Levine, these, these opportunities that we have to engage hearts and minds across America, that this is a conversation we need to have right now and to bring to life the commitment to reducing automotive fatalities here in the United States. And, Jeremy, is this going to happen every December 16th from now on? or Yet to be determined. Tonight's our first night on The Voice, so uh, last night we announced it, and tonight will be the first uh, 
first uh, kind of uh, uh, showing out the gate, but I sure do hope so. Okay, well, thank you so much for being on the show. This was Jeremy Tucker, uh, Vice President of Communications and Marketing at Nissan Corporation on Red Thumb Day. Put your phones down now wherever you are if you are close to a running engine. All. Thank you, Jeremy, for being on the show today. Thank you. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you, too. Be right back, everybody. Welcome back, everybody. The uh, American in Paris traffic jam is also not just about the texting of the previous topic, but it's the traffic jam of all the uh, wonderful guest content we have today. Back on the show uh, with me is the UCI Law School founding and current Dean Erwin Chemerinsky here to talk about his new book, The Case Against the Supreme Court, an equal opportunity criticism of progressives and conservatives on the Supreme Court. Months ago, I had arranged to cover this book, with, uh, but with the Senate's report of the CIA's post-9-11 interrogation practices, I thought it necessary to take up uh, Dean Chemerinsky's inestimably insightful examination of that particular CIA conduct. But given the brevity of the interview, today I've decided to refer listeners to the fine interviews uh, all over the media, including one that uh, UCI's humanities professor John Wiener did with Erwin Chemerinsky last, I believe it was last Wednesday on, I'm naming the other brand, on KPFK, so that there's, you can get more information of that, but I'll give you the chance to go there. So given, as I said, Professor Chemerinsky's areas of expertise are constitutional law, federal practice, civil rights, and civil liberties and appellate litigation. He is the author of eight books, including the topic of today's conversation, The Case Against the Supreme Court, published earlier this fall is just out, to which we're going to turn today. He frequently argues cases before the nation's highest courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, and also serves as a commentator on legal issues for national and local media. Listeners may have followed his weekly column in the Orange County Register, monthly columns for the American Bar Association Journal and the Daily Journal, and frequent op-eds in newspapers across the country. Recognized by various sources as the most influential person in legal education in the U.S., Dean Chemerinsky, by local estimation, is the most present academic and legal mind in any and all forms around this county of ours. Dean Chemerinsky completed his law degree from Harvard Law School and his B.A. from Northwestern University. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Dean Chemerinsky. Thank you so much for that incredibly kind introduction. It's such a pleasure to be with you. You are the most gracious man alive. So You're so sweet. Thank you. Please. It's very good to have you with us today. As I said, although I was rooting for you to make it on to a jury with your duty <laughs> uh, responsibility looming, uh, are, are you uh, going to report at all this round, or is it just this is I, the end? I reported yesterday and spent the day in the jury room. I did not get sent to a courtroom, and because California has one day or one trial, I did my day. I would love to someday be on a jury. On the other hand, every time I've got sent into a courtroom and would put on the jury box, I always get struck, and I understand that. Well, as much as it's obvious that they would strike you uh, is, I'm sure, your burning desire to serve and to observe and that kind of a thing. So I, I'm not sure which, uh, th I think it's very symmetrical, those, uh, those two different sensibilities. Now on to your latest book, The Case Against the Supreme Court. How far back in the history of the Supreme Court was it necessary for you to examine the court's shortcomings? I think it's important to start at the very beginning. Got to remember, from 1787, when the Constitution was drafted, until 1865, 
And that's a period of 78 years. The Supreme Court consistently upheld the institution of slavery and ruled in favor of slave owners. Not once did the Supreme Court chip away at the institution of slavery or do anything to protect the rights of slaves. There you are. You, you raise an interesting question, uh, considering those whom are rightfully protected, as you say, like the slaves, uh, and we have now the, uh, we have also, we have disenfranchised voters, we have, uh, uh, as a minority and uh, uh, economically underprivileged as a minority, uh, you're saying that th they should be rightfully protected under such a document as the Constitution. But as you ask in some very interesting interviews, you've been asked and you answer, why have a constitution? Why should a democracy be governed by a document that is so difficult to change? I always begin my constitutional law classes, whether I'm teaching law students or undergraduates with that question. In fact, tomorrow I'm going to go speak at a junior high school here in Orange County. And I always ask the eighth graders who are studying the constitution that question. And, of course, what I want them to realize is what makes the constitution different from all other laws is that the Constitution is so much more difficult to change. What I want them to think about is, why should a nation that thinks of itself as a democracy be governed under a document that none of us voted for, most of us didn't have ancestors who voted for? And the answer is that I think it's beneficial for society to put its most precious values in a document that's difficult to change. The Constitution is an elaborate edifice to make sure that our short-term passions don't cause to lose sight of our long-term social values. I hope, I know that refrain will be intact for those middle schoolers to imprint them for life. Uh, is, I, it's so beautifully penned. Um, the legal interpretation and the wordsmithing uh, are, are, are always a pleasure to take in in interactions with you, Dean Chemerinsky. Thank you. Well, so I'm trying to cover what we can. Are the Supreme sure. Court appointments with their attendant ideological uh, blind spots or agendas only as good as the vetting process carried out by the executive branch, the president? That's right. It's only as good as the appointment process of the president and the confirmation process of the Senate. Throughout American history, there have been terrific nominees for the Supreme Court. There have also been a lot of cronies and some mediocre nominees for the Supreme Court. All presidents have looked to the ideology of those they're appointing. It started with George Washington, wanted people of his Federalist ideology, and it continues to this day with George W. Bush and Barack Obama picking Supreme Court justices of their views. At the same time, the Senate plays a key role. Over the course of American history, about 20% of Supreme Court nominees by presidents have been rejected by the Senate. I argue in the book, though, that we can do a better job I argue for a merit selection system for Supreme Court nominations and a much more robust and meaningful confirmation process. However, those revisions are constitutional, are they not? No. Any They're president on his or her own could create a merit selection system. Jimmy Carter did this for federal district court and federal court of appeals judges. He never got the chance to pick anyone for the Supreme Court. And so what I argue is that the next president should say, as soon as there's a vacancy for the Supreme Court, he's going to appoint a bipartisan commission and ask them to send him say, two or three names of those who they think would be the very best for the Supreme Court. And he says he only wants names that can have two-thirds agreement of those on the commission to ensure there's bipartisan support. And he would say, I'll either choose one of those names or ask you for more names. This is a system that works in other states, and I think it could work for Supreme Court picks and all federal court picks as well. 
Well, I remember when President George W. Bush, that's uh, 43, had uh, his revision to the, the, the vetting process was to have uh, not to have his nominees reviewed by the the AB the American Bar Association board for uh, d- the degree of qualification. I guess that was the the last sort of revision of the vetting process, was it not? It was. The ABA's never played an official role in the vetting process. The American Bar Association has been, for a long time, asked to give its evaluations of nominees. Republicans thought that the evaluations were too ideological, and so President George W. Bush wanted to cut the ABA out. The ABA is ideologically neutral. I think liberals think it's too conservative, and conservatives think it's too liberal. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest in this portion of the show is UCI Law School Dean Erwin Chemerinsky on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming in... uh, in courtroom, uh, t- um, well, let's say in the, uh, yes, the courthouse uh, uh, alleyways, the um, hallways on the web at KUCI.org. Uh, we're talking about the different kinds of vetting uh, selection processes for the Supreme Court nominees. And I, I, I wanted to bring up, uh, and it, I think it came into very sharp focus with the the last two U.S. Supreme Court uh nominations, uh, Justice Roberts and, or no, in those, I have to go back before the most recent ones, uh, but during the Bush administration, Justice Roberts and Justice Alito, that it, um, and maybe you'll argue too with uh, Justice Sotomayor, is that it was a pageant. You heard them all acknowledge that they had no ideological uh, agenda. They were going to uh, I won't go to the sports analogies. They're a bit tired, but but, but they do come up anyway because it's it's uh, you make some very good uh, um, uh, explanations with those uh, an sports analogies. But the pageant, it's a pageant of I'm going to stonewall every one of you in this confirmation hearing, and I'm going to do what I blank please. Uh, so uh, how how is it uh, how unbearable is it for you, Dean Chemerinsky, to watch that pageant of of not of a disclaimer of the obvious agendas that they all hold? I had the chance to testify against Samuel Alito at his confirmation hearings in January of 2006. Then Senator Joe Biden came up to me at a break and said, this is all an exercise of kabuki theater. Yes. He says that everyone in the room knows that Samuel Alito is going to be a very conservative justice. And, of course, that's exactly what he's been. But Senator Biden said to me, all the Republicans are pretending he has no ideology and all the Democrats are trying to ask a question to trip him up, but he's too smart for that. We saw the same thing with John Roberts. And on the other hand, we saw the same thing with Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan. Everyone knew that they were going to be liberal justices, but the Democrats all pretended they didn't have an ideology and they were open-minded. And the Republicans tried to trip them up, and they were much too smart for that. I think so long as the Senate is of the same political party as the president, the confirmation process is largely an exercise in theater. Where you have a meaningful confirmation process is where the president and the Senate are from different political parties. Of course, that's what we had when Robert Bork was rejected, and that's what we have beginning in January again. Exactly. So you've given us um, one kind of reform uh, that you can entice our listeners uh, to uh, tease them to get their own copy of your book. Um, I guess 
one thing that has to, it's obviously has to be asked, does, does your book change what you would do were you, and inevitably, I'm sure you will be appearing again before the Supreme Court. It's an interesting question, and it's one that I'm asked a lot. What's it like to write a book titled The Case Against the Supreme Court, when from time to time, including most recently last December, I argue in the Supreme Court? Now, part of my answer is to shrug and say, the justices probably pay no attention to my book. Part of the answer is to shrug and say, well, last year when I argued in front of the Supreme Court, I lost nine to nothing. The time before that, I lost eight to nothing. The last two cases that I sat at council table and second chaired lost by a combined total of 18 to nothing. So for the last four times I've sat Supreme Court at the council table, I've lost by a combined total of 35 to nothing. It can't get any worse. Um, but all of that said, I think my real answer to your question is, I'm very fortunate by virtue of my position to right. have a platform to express my views. And I had a, a terrific publisher, Viking, who was willing to write a, publish a book for a large audience on the Supreme Court. I think I have the obligation to use that platform to express what I believe so deeply. Okay, well then I'm going to pick up on that audience theme. And so we have Hanukkah right today and for the rest of the week, and we have other holiday uh, sorts of gift opportunities. So the audience uh, for the case for the Supreme Court is uh, anybody who's on anybody's list. Well, thank you. I hope so. But I do want to emphasize this was a book that was written for a general audience. It wasn't a book that was just written for lawyers and law professors. The central theme of the book is that the Supreme Court has often failed through American history, often at the most important times and often at the most important tasks. And I, I want to pick up where you talked before about the, uh, the when we talked about the agendas, that it's not the, um, the agendas that are not disclosed during the, not the vetting, but the confirmation process itself is how, uh, um, since we, there's a hazard here with the, uh, as, as we, as Justice uh, Roberts mentioned, that we're, we're only going to call balls and strikes. And you say, no, 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 they're setting the whole entire framework. They're, they're setting laws, not just, not just uh, a certain uh, individualized decisions that, these laws have such long-term consequences. So it's uh, how, how do you, um, what can we do about this? Well, I think there's much that we can do. We've already talked about changing the appointment confirmation process. I believe that there should be 18-year non-renewable terms for Supreme Court justices. In other words, term limits for the Supreme Court. I think it's important to change the way the court communicates with the American people. I'd start with having cameras in every Supreme Court proceeding. I think we need to change the ethical rules for Supreme Court justices. I think most people are surprised to know that the ethical rules that apply to other federal court judges don't apply to Supreme Court justices. A justice is left to decide for himself or herself whether to be disqualified from a case. That's wrong. No one should be a judge for himself or herself. So, Dean Chemerinsky, where can who has the authority to make all the changes you just mentioned? Well, it varies. In terms of the appointments, every president could create a merit selection system for his or her nominees. The Senate can change the confirmation process. When it comes to cameras in the court, the Supreme Court could do it, or Congress could force it on the court. Congress can adopt a statute 
that applies the ethical rules that apply to all other federal judges to Supreme Court justices. The only change that would require a constitutional amendment would be term limits for Supreme Court justices. Under Article Three of the Constitution, Supreme Court justices have their positions for life. So I think we can all let our minds race to how likely those different entities are and how inclined they are to reform this whole um, situation. Uh, and it's, it, it really isn't that likely, is it? Unless, I mean, we can't, we, having the cameras shine brightly on the proceedings would be an impetus for the public to, to be sufficiently uh, concerned about what's going on uh, with su- the Supreme Court's functioning. But, uh, but just to get that change, would, it, it's, it's very unlikely, is it not? I think that's one that's going to happen. I think it's just a matter of time before there's cameras in the Supreme Court. The justices on the current court are resistant. The main reason they give is they're afraid of the John Stewart effect. They're afraid that there'll be clips of their oral arguments that are placed on John Stewart or other TV shows in mocked. That's no reason to not have cameras in the court. There are 350 seats in the Supreme Court room. When you think of cases that involve marriage equality or the right to abortion, they affect all of us, often the most intimate and important aspects of our lives. We should all be able to see it. And maybe if the court won't do it, Congress will pass a law. I just think it's a matter of time. I think there will be cameras in the Supreme Court in my lifetime. Well, I guess uh, the, the media, maybe in my small way, uh, all, all media has a huge role in creating the momentum for this change that is so overdue. We've had, as you, how long have we started having cameras in some courtrooms to show how old the president is elsewhere? Well, so far as I know, I mean, you're going back to the mid, even, well, even the earlier part of the 20th century. Um, if you remember the Lindbergh kidnapping, there were cameras in the courtroom there that made it into a media circus. Um, and that's the 1930s. Okay. So as, as long as there have been cameras, there have been courtrooms where they have been present, but not in the United States Supreme Court. So that is to say how overdue it is. Well, uh, I, I was hoping for a chance to, to bring up the Senate report on CIA and torture. Uh, there, there really isn't time for that. Uh, you've given us a generous allotment today with all the things you're doing uh, it, in academics, in uh, public relations, and in education throughout uh, the not just the the region but throughout the land. I'm I will direct people to John Wiener's wonderful interview with you last week on KPFK. There's a podcast for John Wiener. He's a your colleague here. Uh, he's at the UCI School of the Humanities. Dean. Chemerinsky, law school dean here at UC Irvine. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. Such a pleasure for us. All the best. Happy Hanukkah. Same to you. Thank you. Well, we'll be right back. The Stanford Scientist will be right back. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. That was Charles Lloyd. I hope that puts you in the mood here uh, with my next and our last, uh, last of our guests on the show today. They are, in fact, Chris Field and Catherine Mock, both 
uh, science researchers at Stanford Universities. Uh, first is Chris Field, founding director of, yes, it's Carnegie's Institution Department of Global Ecology and uh, the Melvin and Joan Lone Professor for Interdisciplinary Environmental Studies at Stanford. His research emphasizes field and laboratory studies of impacts of climate change from the molecular to the global scale. You see why we have him here. He is co-chair of the Working Group 2 of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which led the effort on the IPCC Special Report on Managing the Risks of Extreme Events and Disasters to Advance Climate Change Adaptation. There are many more things to talk about his award uh, and recognition, uh, but I want to zoom in with our time remaining to also introduce Catherine Mock so we can get to the questions and answers here. Catherine Mock is co-director of science for the IPCC uh, Working Group. Uh, technical support unit. Her work supports the scientific activities of the IPCC, uh, which has included expert meetings and workshops, the special report on managing the risks of extreme events and disasters to advance climate change adaptation, and now the working group two contributions to the fifth assessment report. Her past research has involved marine biomechanics and ecophysiology, ecological consequences of wave-induced breakage in seaweeds, and impacts of climate <coughs> change for ocean ecosystems. So current <coughs> research includes the methods of assessment and treatment of uncertainties, this is important, and risk in climate change assessments and decision making. Both Chris Field and Catherine Mock received their undergraduate degrees at Harvard and their PhDs at Stanford, although during uh, different years. They uh, both come to us today from Palo Alto, California, and are here to talk about their recent participation in the UN uh, Lima Climate Change Conference that just convened. So thank you for both of you being on the show, Chris Field and Catherine Mock. Claudia, thanks. Thank Ca you. It's wonderful to be on the show. For those of us who missed the meeting, I'd like for both Chris Field and Catherine Mock to tell us about the setting in Lima and the give and the take of the scientists with the policymakers. What was that like? First, Chris. Uh, sure. Well, as you probably know and your listeners probably know, the world has been working to try and come up with um, on-the-ground mechanisms to put in place the goals of the 1992 Framework Convention on Climate Change. And this was the 20th effort to do that, and it's one that was intended as laying the foundation stones for, for a big agreement in the Paris meeting of next year. Right. About 10,000 people participated, representatives of all the world's governments, and the meeting started with a really optimistic tone, a tone about um, finding pathways forward around issues and over issues that have been difficult in the future. And I think it ended with a feeling of only partial accomplishment, but with some of the key pieces really being laid down and with a clear understanding of the things that need to be done between now and 2015. I think that the meeting was a major success. It didn't accomplish everything people had hoped for initially, but it really opened doorways that hopefully will be productive in the months ahead. Catherine, and speaking directly in to your phone if you can. Great. So I think the Lima Accord for Climate Action, as Chris is describing, really gives us a foundation for the long-term action on climate change that lies ahead. And maybe there are three most unique aspects of this foundation. And the first one is that it's 
the Lima decision involved all countries. Right. Laying forward the path to Paris, where it won't just be developed countries pledging to reduce their emissions of heat-trapping gases, but it will be all countries. That's a big advance. The second key feature of the Lima decision is that it combines both ambition in mitigation and fairness. So these are going to be nationally driven pledges where governments will be as ambitious as they possibly can in reducing emissions while recognizing that if you're a large, rich country with big technology infrastructure, your mitigation ambition may move faster than small poor countries who have contributed less so far. And the third key feature of the Lima decision is that recognition that we already see impacts around us. So responding to climate change, managing the risks that will increase is not just about reducing our emissions of heat-trapping gases, but it's also about preparing for the impacts that can't be avoided. Excellent. We're, we're bearing with it. It's a wavy kind of a reception, but I'm so glad to, that we have you to, to talk about the, that all essential participation and perspective. Were there as many scientists as policymakers? Or so what, is, what was the mix in getting this kind of step-taking done? The nature of these meetings is that the conferences of the parties, the meeting we just had in Lima, is really the uh, delegations from countries speaking to each other. Uh, the structure of the advisory system is that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the organization that, that Katie and I are working with provides these comprehensive reports that provide the scientific foundation for the negotiations that occur in Lima. What we saw from the most recent series of reports was evidence that climate change impacts have already occurred and we're already feeling the impacts, evidence that we need to be investing in adaptation, and those themes were taken up very strongly in Lima in the opening ministerial session where ministers of environment of more than 100 countries spoke. Uh, we really heard the concept of being science-based, of moving forward on the findings of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change hundreds of times, a firm embrace uh, that we have a real problem and that we need to solve it using not only a science-based assessment of what the challenges are, but a science-based evaluation of where the opportunities for solutions come. Well, as we were we're watching from way beyond Lima that there it looked like precious little maybe even symbolic value was going to happen and then there was that acceleration of I don't know if you call it collaboration uh, into the wee hours finally hashing out the sort of everybody take a small step together uh, Sunday a.m. Uh, our time your time so um, can you talk about how that how we plot those dots toward making that kind of progress. How um, is, is there sort of a, a sort of scientific testimonial that's saying not enough, not enough? Can we get sort of an, a, a, an urgent appeal to policymakers to just move another, uh, keep moving a foot, move, move half a foot, move a tenth of a foot, just keep moving closer? Is, is that what might have been part of the dynamic there? I think you can think of Lima as a step in a long-term journey towards addressing the climate challenge. And I think the excitement of Lima was that we do see some increasing momentum. So we were entering into Lima with announcements from the U.S. and from China, right. the world's two largest emitters, as well as the EU. So if you put those three groups together, that's over 50% of emissions globally. So I think starting in Lima, there's 
there was an unusual amount of optimism. That said, getting 195 governments to agree is always going to be challenging. It will drive through the night as these negotiations go on. But I think coming out of Lima, recognizing that this is just one step in this journey, I think people do feel still optimism that this is providing a foundation for those next steps where countries around the world declare what their pledges will be towards reducing emissions and towards Paris, which will stitch together all of those national contributions. For those of you who've just joined us, my guests are Stanford climate scientists Chris Field and Catherine Mock, who've just returned from the UN Lima Climate Change Conference that was completed at the at the wee hours of Sunday. And you two probably just came back the, a day later, so uh, we're you're almost in the same time zone. Uh, uh, as you're accustomed, uh, so uh, it's really a pleasure, it's an honor to have both of you on today. Well, as you're talking about the uh, where uh, that the where the optimism uh, was, the tone was set going into Lima. I'd like to know what both of you, in as as science researchers, the professionals, what was the out? What were you two trying to negotiate for with your counterparts? Uh, I, I should be clear that. These negotiations are between governments, and the scientists are there as providing support. So what our role was was to make sure that delegates kept their eye on what we considered to be the climate ball, the the seriousness of the issue, and especially the recognition that we're in an era now where ambitious action now can avoid the worst impacts of climate change, delay – makes the actions more expensive, more complicated, and it leads to more residual damages. The real issue that were was basically the sticking point uh, throughout the two weeks in Lima was the question of whether meaningful progress is going to depend on countries uh, signing up at this point the binding limits on the extent to which they had to decrease emissions in the future, or whether the process would be more of a uh, construction of a virtuous circle where each country does their best to see uh, what kind of commitment they can make, uh, responding to what other countries do, and developing a dynamic moving forward. Uh, this this tension uh, between the binding agreement to solve the whole problem now versus construction of a process is more or less what the delegates were hustling over over the entire two weeks. And the final outcome was very much in the direction of the dynamic process moving forward, recognizing that major specific commitments at this point are really challenging, both politically and uh, also scientifically. Did you want to add to that, Catherine Mock? I think that covered it. I mean, I think there was, in terms of your question of were we negotiating, um, no, but it was a really deep integration of the science into the negotiation process to use that evidence as the starting point. And so these structured dialogues where governments really wanted to understand scientifically what do we know about the risks we're seeing right now, how do those go up as we head to 1.5 to 3 degrees Celsius increase above pre-industrial levels, and if we want to then limit warming to those levels to a level where we might have a good chance of adapting to the impacts. What do we know about how rapidly, how ambitiously we need to drive emissions down towards zero in this country? 
Well, the the one of the hard cases or the the dichotomies was the um, the third most polluter, uh, carbon emission polluter, uh, India. That Prime Minister Modi wants to advance his country's economic development, and the irony of uh, ironies is his major. I th- I don't know what percentage of his population is at risk with the the sea level rise. So. What were your counterparts in in the Indian science group? What was their task t- in that situation? Well, India is in um, a unique position as a large emitter, but also as a country that's very vulnerable to impacts of climate change. Right. Uh, the the way I view it is that every country has a priority to provide for the well-being and the advancement of its population. India should totally be focused on economic development. But the Indian establishment, the Indian government, and the Indian scientific community also recognize that they don't want to be locking themselves into a horse and buggy energy system. Uh, The Indian economy is, in many ways, one of the most vibrant in the world, and it has opportunity to establish to build from scratch a 21st century energy system that's based on non-emitting technologies. So the real challenge is how to find the right combination of incentives and motivations in order to allow economic development to proceed without locking the society into an antiquated energy system. That's an excellent point and a reassuring point, in fact. But uh, So could you observe in this forum in Lima and ob- that sort of recognition of that opportunity, a, a receptivity to, well, let's let's set up our economy around the leading edge, job creating new technologies. Was that was that a recognition with your Indian counterparts? I think what was very striking was across countries, and this is actually whether you're looking at the richest countries or the poorest countries. Increasingly, there is an understanding that. If you were to say, let's aim for zero emissions or let's aim for zero poverty, that those are not trade-offs, that they're actually incredibly tied together. And that's because in so many ways, climate change threatens our ability to develop sustainably. If you look at some of the poorest regions where people are really living on the margin in terms of food security, water availability, climate change will make things harder. Or if you look at places where coal and cook stoves are having very bad impacts on human health right now, We can put these pieces together, reducing the impacts, transitioning to the energy system of the 21st century, and developing economically and in in terms of so many aspects of the human endeavor. Those pieces tied together. Well, I guess let's take that coal, the immediate impact of coal on the the population. And uh, let's talk about that as we're starting to wrap up things, not completely. Is that, could we attribute that immediate impact as a, a reason for how the Chinese government had that productive summit with our government in advance of the Lima conference? That um, what was the population sending up in its own way in China? So it's not a bottom-up society, but, but was there, in effect, a bottom-up sort of protest of the fouled air quality that's affecting all the Chinese lives? Was that a beginning of what we got out of that summit, which led to this uh, maybe more advances with the Lima summit? You know, I think there are a wide range of reasons that countries want to participate in finding solutions to the climate challenge. Certainly in China, one of the biggest issues is the understanding that their energy system is producing totally unacceptable impacts on air quality, and that 
solving the energy problem, moving to non-emitting sources, we'll also have tremendous co-benefits in solving the air quality problem. I think that's strongly motivating for the Chinese leadership, and it really opens doors to coming up with creative approaches to addressing the problem. And that being said, it's important to recognize that a country like China or any even the U.S. Uh, can't turn off all the coal power plants tomorrow. And the reason that we need to act soon in order to put the mechanisms in place is because it will take some time to bring these antiquated technologies offline. Right. I've had Steve Davis on here, UCI's own climate scientist, and he's talked about the whole the carbon commitment and carbon emission commitment, and uh, it's set in motion for a good deal of time, as well as what our discharges, the persistence of our our emissions discharges are in the in the uh, atmosphere. So it's it's very slow moving. But uh, what would you both want to say, Catherine Mock and Chris Field? What is the most valuable takeaway from your Lima meeting that gets us all moving on uh, and persuading policymakers, persuading? A- uh, financial leaders to take the next steps after Lima? I think we have a great sense from Lima, from where all 196 governments are right now, that responding to climate change can be a way to build a better world. It can be a way to see great leadership in nations. It can be a way to move to new energy infrastructure that's good for our economies, that's good for our health, that's good for our societies. Chris, thank you. Ma- Catherine Mock, Chris Field? Yeah, I I think there are really two key points. One is that the climate challenge is a challenge that we can solve and that leadership in addressing climate is really a top priority for great nations of the 21st century. Amen. So um, are either or both of you going to be at the Paris Summit next year? Wouldn't miss it. Uh, And Catherine, you'll be there too? I definitely hope so. Okay, so how will you prepare then from what was left with this first step in Lima? What, how will you prepare? What do you have to scramble and get together now with you, with yourselves and with your counterparts around the world? The governments of the you world know our hope. Go ahead, Katie. Yes. Oh, sorry. The governments of the world will definitely be working very hard over the next month, both in terms of the national contributions that they will be announcing the next three months, the next six months, okay, and also in terms of setting up the technical infrastructure within the policy landscape to enable Paris to be a success. But, you know, that's really actions among the governments, and I think the challenge for science is to really continue to provide the foundation for those decisions so that we're making the best choices we possibly can responding to climate change. So is there, uh, Chris, you were going to say something too, and then I was going to follow up, but if there's a consumer part toward uh, uh, addressing that uh, pol- that landscape, that policy infrastructure landscape. So, Chris, you were going to say about uh, preparing for Paris. Well, a- as was the case in Lima, the Paris meeting is a discussion among governments. The time for science input is, is right now, the time for public input. But governments really respond to the pressures from their populations. And I think that uh, key feature of the landscape that the scientific community and the American public, the world public, need to understand is that all of us insisting on a good, strong agreement in Paris is going to be absolutely empowering for the governments to come up with what we need. Okay, that's the takeaway. I want to thank, on short notice, Chris Field and Catherine Mock have made themselves available. They're both 
Stanford climate change researchers, and they're here to talk fresh from their UN Lima Climate Change Conference uh, just finished at the wee hours, as I said, on Sunday. I want to thank both of you for being on the show today. So Real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll stay tuned. We'll see what happens in uh, uh, leading up to Paris. And if there's some log jam, you can help us uh, pr- break uh, in the uh, the Congress to get that leadership up and running. Uh, I want to hear what that concise suggestion is. I'm all there for you. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Next week, we are going to talk with some local art impresarios who will offer some cultural fair to lift your spirits and move your soul over the holidays. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Talk to you next week. 